Hi, good people, and welcome to Black Women in Wellness, a podcast uplifting the voices of Black women doing the work of wellness in their communities. I'm your host and the creator of the series, Rachel Heath. And today I have something special for you. I had the great pleasure of bringing together two of my past guests, Dr. Alicia Bonaparte and Trisha Gray, to have a deeper conversation about reproductive justice and reproductive rights. And honestly, y'all, this conversation was so much deeper than reproductive justice and reproductive rights. We just got into conversation about what it means to be Black and what it means for us to come together as a community. It's an amazing conversation. I'm not going to do any more talking. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this Reproductive Justice Talk. My name is Rachel Heath. I am the creator and host of the Black Women in Wellness podcast. Black Women in Wellness is a podcast which has the sole purpose of promoting Black women who are working to create wellness in their communities. And in this particular moment, it was very present of mind for me to bring people with expertise and wisdom around reproductive justice and reproductive rights, because there's a lot of chatter happening right now about reproductive justice and reproductive rights. And we as Black women know that that chatter often does not include our lived experiences. Um, so I am excited, <laughs> beyond excited today, to have two of my past guests from the podcast here to share their wisdom about reproductive justice and reproductive rights. And I'm gonna pull up my script here so I can give them their flowers properly. Um, mm -hmm. One of our panelists is Trisha Gray. Trisha Gray is a Los Angeles-based community worker with over 15 years of experience in juvenile carceral system, foster care, suicide education and awareness and county public health. And we also have Dr. Alicia Bonaparte who is currently a full professor of sociology at Pitzer College and trained as a medical sociologist with a specialization in reproductive health, health disparities, and female crime and deviance. That's just a little bit about them, but I am going to have them introduce themselves. Um, and so with that said, I would like to get to my lovely guests and I will ask you a question that I am very used to asking folks. What do you do in the world of wellness? And I'll start with you, Trisha. Thank you for having me, by the way. Um, and so my name is Trisha, and the, what I do in the world of wellness is I am a volunteer coordinator at an abortion fund at Access Reproductive Justice. A main reason I came to Access Reproductive Justice is that it is a Black-led um, justice organization. We lead with Blackness. We talk about Blackness on a daily basis, and we talk about the impacts of uh, what happens to Black people through systems of oppression. And that is happening in reproductive justice and reproductive health right now. So this is a really great time to be in community with people. Um, and a big thing that I would say I'm hoping to um, share with folks is that we are not internally ill. There are systems that are causing things to happen to us, just like if you were in an environment with a lot of pollution, you might develop asthma. I think that's something that really resonates with me as it relates to the Black experience in America. And that's something I, I hope to elaborate on in this conversation. Thank you, Trisha. And how about you, Dr. Bonaparte? So again, much like Trisha, thank you so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure to engage in these purposeful and intentional conversations about things that are important to me. 
So I think of myself as a variety of things when I think about how do I contribute and what do I do in the world of wellness? I think as an educator, I very much so see myself as a person who is willing to share and invite my students and anyone else that I'm engaging with my scholarship about to think about the social lived experiences that we have and what social structural elements of the world influence that. And I think once you have an understanding of how those systems work, it helps you make more sense of why my life is the way that it is. Why are there certain levels of vulnerable social conditions that I suffer under? What are the ways in which this then makes me susceptible to particular types of experiences, particularly in the areas of health and illness, right? I think the other things that I think are important for me when I think about the work that I do is beyond just being an educator is I do see myself as an advocate. Um, I'm, we're currently working right now on the second edition of the Birthing Justice book. So it's Birthing Justice, Black Women, Pregnancy, and Childbirth. And so finding out and realizing that the fact that another edition is needed about this just very much so tells you is that I'm very much so not only committed to this conversation, but also committing to inviting other people to not only be a part of that conversation, but also increasing people's agency, their autonomy. And then last, of course, but not least, but also making sure that the interventions that exist are actually doing the job that they're intended to do. And I think the last thing is I'm a, I'm a midwife advocate. Like I love midwives. I think they're wonderful and amazing in particular black midwives. Um, these are women that uh, my research is rooted in not only what they teach us, but also I see them as the first reproductive justice advocates. So for me, I think highlighting that, showing that, and then also just engaging birth justice as well is kind of how I do what it is that I do in the world of wellness. So thanks for the question. Ooh, wow. And this is why, folks, this is why I keep the company I keep. Black women are amazing. I'm going to keep saying it over and over again throughout this conversation. Um, and we're going to jump into this conversation by laying a little more foundation. We've dubbed this as a talk about reproductive justice, but I think that that term can kind of get lost in a bit of melee about what it means to have justice, what reproduction means. Um, and so I'm wondering if you all could explain to our audience what reproductive justice actually is. I, I can definitely share. Um, I think reproductive justice is definitely agency. So as it relates to a person wanting to choose to have children or having children or raising the children that they have um, in a very healthy and thriving environment and community, that's all related to a person's agency to make those decisions of their body. I think when I think of justice in all um, aspects, I'm thinking that a person should have equal and equitable and fair access to making those agency decisions. And I think that this is something that has been lost in like pro-choice or um, abortion discussions, because this is not just about abortion. A big piece of what we do is really expressing to people how um, their agency is their own to take, their power to take. It's not something that they feel that they're empowered to have. And I think that's a lot of work that we have to like undo based on what they've been conditioned to feel and feel about themselves and feel about their rights and their power in making decisions about how their future is. Oh, wow. And and I think that circles back to what you were saying, Dr. Bonaparte, also about systems. I think when we hear these conversations about reproductive justice, they are very much couched in pro-choice and Planned Parenthood. And it, we know as people of color, the most immediate thing that we are working against are systems that are working against us. And reproductive health is just one facet of that. Um, I'm wondering, Dr. Bonaparte, if there's anything you'd like to add to that 
So first of all, Trisha gave an amazing and beautiful elucidation of what reproductive rights is. I think the only other thing that I would probably add in, because part of my research looks at the experiences of practitioners as well as people who are patients with reproductive health experiences. And so for me, it's also making for sure that the practices that are happening within clinical settings as it relates to sexual and reproductive health, because I think sometimes people forget the two are tied together. They're not the same, but they are very much so tied together. So ensuring right that the type of care that people receive, again, based upon whatever autonomous choices that they make, is fully supported. And I think the other thing that is so beautiful to me about reproductive justice is that the idea of it was formed in community. And I argue that reproductive justice is about community and supporting people who have made those autonomous decisions, right? So not only saying you made that decision, but also I support, I value, and I honor what it is that you've decided to do, I think is another huge important piece of it as well. Ooh, yes, I love that. I support and I honor what it is that you've chosen to do. I want to have that emblazoned like everywhere so that we can remember that people have bodily autonomy to make decisions about what they want to do. Um, transitioning a little bit, now that we've kind of laid that foundation, I'm curious to know how you've seen your work in reproductive justice evolve over the past, let's say, five years. I know that Roe was a watershed moment for a lot of people, but we know that this conversation and this fight for reproductive justice has been happening for a very long time. So I'm just curious about its evolution in your work. Um, and I'll start with you, Dr. Bonaparte, and then we'll go to you, Trisha. Okay. So first of all, I appreciate this question because it pushes me to be really self-reflective, and I actually like those moments of introspection. So it's interesting that when I started my research, I was just simply interested in talking about these women who have not been given the credit that they are due, right? These grand midwives in the early 20th century and also during slavery as well, and the ways in which they were engaging in reproductive justice, like its earliest evolution, if you could call it that, here in the United States. And the thing that I thought was so intriguing was these narratives that we have about superstition, these narratives that we have about the importance of community around birth had been completely taken over, right? So the levels of cultural appropriation within birthing spaces of, oh, well, now that white middle-class and upper-class women want the experience of a midwife, not recognizing the like, but you are taking many of these concepts and these ideas from these people. And then embedded within all of this is also an understanding of the fact that these ideas that we now are dealing with in regards to pregnancy, and I'm gonna speak about pregnancy in particular, um, are been pathologized. And in particular, that Black women or Black folks with a womb or people who are capable of having a child have now been pathologized as a dangerous entity within clinical spaces. And so realizing that by me telling this story or engaging in the storytelling about these Black women midwives then meant that I had to also interrogate what does it mean about pregnancy being viewed as this pathological thing, this thing that requires a large series of medical interventions. And so making that jump of, as a historical medical sociologist and seeing the application applications of it in a contemporary fashion was one big woohoo moment for me. And then moving forward, one of the things that I thought was very troubling is that seeing these statistics, and I don't want to be one of those people that goes down that Black women are dying at these rates because that's another for type of patholog pathological narrative, I think, that's placed upon folks with wounds and birthing folks in particular. But in particular, I thought to myself, hey, why don't we engage this understanding of let's talk about and highlight the people who are doing the really good work right now. Because that in and of itself then means if I highlight the work that you're doing, hopefully that will elicit more support for the work that you're doing. 
And I want to be really careful and mindful when I use this term support, because I don't just mean, hey, I'm physically present with you. I'm also talking about financial support. And I think we have to be really honest about the fact that reproductive justice is also talking about making for sure that those financial supports are in place for that honoring of someone's choice, for that saying, I choose and I support what it is that you're doing, right? So for me, seeing that shift and that change and still seeing the necessity of giving this historical story is so, so important. And what's really sad for me, and this will be my last point that I make, what's really sad for me is that when I share the stories of these Black random midwives and I talk about these pathological narratives and people say, people do that today. <laughs> my doctor did this thing to me today using exactly what you just said. So the fact that these narratives are centuries old is very, very telling for the need for evolution and change within this landscape. Honestly, I second all of this um, because as it relates to what I've seen change in just in my work in the community and in social justice work, um, what I have seen change as it relates to reproductive health, it's the pathology. It is more about why didn't you make a better decision? Why didn't you have the better tools? Why didn't you go to X, Y, Z? And there is a, a huge lack of understanding of what happens to a person who has never been trained to navigate the public health system. And you need the public health system. Um, I was teaching people how to navigate the public health system and it was only on a grant program, which means that even our government institutions are not necessarily seeing the importance of helping people to navigate these systems and putting the dollars behind it. That, that money is important. And I think so much that I've seen um, in my work is there's not a lot of see or vision to the people who are most vulnerable, the people who are most impacted. It's just a lot of um, fantasy and uh, conversation around how to make the world better as opposed to really hearing what they're saying. And what they're saying is, my kids are being targeted at school. My children are being shot in the streets. My children are being um, denied care at the hospital. I couldn't get asthma, uh, I couldn't get asthma medication for my child because I couldn't prove the financial need at the Medi-Cal office, which is our state Medicaid uh, insurance provider. I think all of those things are very telling to, that's not today. That is a long-term existing historical issue that Black communities have faced. And of course that would impact how you're able to make decisions about your reproductive health. It is all one and the same. Um, so I would say, it's kind of stayed the same and evolved to where maybe now more so um, there are voices who are not Black people who are in these vulnerable communities saying it's not that bad if we just input this resource. And they're not really, um, I would say, legislators and politicians are not necessarily rooting themselves in grassroots organizations and communities to understand, like, what are the people really asking for? Finances make a huge difference in how people make decisions about their bodies, about their futures, about their families, about where they live, about where they work. I mean, finances are are in a capitalistic society. It is what it is. Absolutely. You know, you all made so many points. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm trying to figure out which one I want to jump into. And I think that the money piece is a huge one. I also think that the piece about, you know, who is making these decisions. We're coming up on a primary right now. And so that is a huge one. Um, midterm elections, excuse me, that is a huge thing. Um, but, you know, what I'm I'm hearing is kind of the overarching conversation is that what we're seeing with our reproductive rights and how they're being manipulated is mm -hmm. a part of a larger system of racial, systemic racial oppression. And, you know, in the work that you do, how do you see that 
either being addressed or not being addressed? And mm. what would you like to see happen? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go to you, Trisha, because I got to. <laughs> um, I started with letting you know that I am at a, a Black-led organization. So we do a lot of conversation around this. And um, I am supported in seeking um, communities around really understanding systemic oppression and racial justice. However, I will say that the 15 years prior was a lot of avoiding the elephant in the room, if you will. And this is why I say, um, Personally, I didn't necessarily think about going into therapy because I really noticed that therapists are rooted in evidence-based practices that don't study Black people and the Black condition or the Black experience in America. And so what you're really doing is creating like an identity issue amongst people that you're serving who don't really have that problem themselves. They're having problems related to how they address the systems that they're approached with on a daily basis of survival. Unfortunately, I do think that the country is like slow to turn to that. And I think it's really important for us as Black women in these leadership roles and in these positions to jump into it fast, to always be talking about it, to always be bringing it up, because that is how um, I would say, like, maybe not wanting to be too abrasive or too confrontational. That's how we kind of have allowed it to steamroll into what it is. Um, and I really mean that by like, white cisgender progressive women who come into these spaces and speak on behalf of the black experience and really that's not their experience i have had um two different experiences in which um there were allies outside of our community that came to us and wanted to really bridge the understanding of racial justice and systemic oppression as it relates to reproductive health and reproductive rights and in one experience that ally sat back brought people into the room and listened. And in another experience, that ally was the main focal point in the room. And I think that it's really important to notice that um, there are people who want to help and we just can't necessarily say, you know, as an ally, you don't necessarily know what I got going on because there are people who want to help and want to be um, in community with us. But as soon as they start talking before you start talking is when we got to cut the mic because the reality is there are far too many women, people who have wounds, who have never been asked. What happened to where you felt like you had to give your children up into the foster care system? What happened to where your children were taken from you and you were not able to reunite? That is another thing that most people don't talk about as it relates to the foster care system. The reunification back to family is very rare. It's almost non-existent because it's a very hard position to, to be in, to get your children taken away by the state and then to be able to acquire them back. It's it's almost like you have to, to give blood or give your life in reality. And unfortunately, um, this is why it's not really fair for other folks outside of our community to be making those decisions or to be speaking on behalf of us because they're not really talking about how that happens to them or how racism is impacting the way or the rate at which they are unified, which, Studies have shown that there is different unification across different races. And that is that is something to be said about our environment where we think um, abortion is not an option, but you could just give your child up for adoption or you could give your child to the state or you could uh, just have the baby. Ooh. I mean, I, I 
I want to jump in and like respond to everything, but I also want to give <laughs> Dr. Bonaparte a chance to do that. And so Dr. Bonaparte, take it away. First of all, Trisha, I am so enjoying that you are my compatriot in this conversation <laughs> ever so much. There's so many things that I was thinking about that you were saying, and I was like, okay, she got that. She got that. So I don't need to say that. I don't need to say that. So one of the things that I will say, I'll use the lens that in which I teach and write and advocate, and that is as a medical sociologist. The fact of the matter is, is that there has been a cry for the medical profession to establish that racism is a social determinant of health and not race. And so for me, <laughs> this is the piece that I always come back to where I'm like, can we finally, finally talk about the real thing that's happening here, which is that racism is a social determinant. So stop saying that it's some individual characteristic of a person or some individual choice that an individual is making that is allowing them to be in these kinds of situations. That's why, as again, as I said, as I was listening to you, Trisha, I was like, go, 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 go. Because in essence, what we're talking about here is that we, I think in the U.S. in particular, we pride ourselves on individualism. And when we do that, it makes us extremely myopic to the social structural factors that in essence influence our lived experiences, right? And so for example, in my classes, I teach students two concepts. One is called proximate causes and the other one is called fundamental causes or risk factors, depending upon which body of knowledge you wanna borrow from, you'll use one of the other terms. And in particular, the proximate causes, the individual choices that you make that may necessarily impact your health in a negative way. Whereas the fundamental stuff, right? The fundamental causes, these are those causes external to you as a person. So for example, policy decisions, right? The fact that you live in a neighborhood that's filled with environmental toxins, right? Um, a small side note, there's a study that came out. A friend of mine showed this to me a few years ago when we were in grad school together. And one of the things that in the study it showed is that children who are misbehaving in schools, they found that they, it wasn't that they were misbehaving because they had some type of behavioral disorder. They found that they were starving and they had not slept because the toxins that were literally in their lived environments was what's causing it. So again, when we, when we ask this question of individualism and pull our bootstraps up in these kinds of convoluted conversations, what it does is it completely obfuscates how social structural conditions are the reasons why people make the decisions that they make. And so when I teach this to my students, I say that fundamental causes and proximate causes have a cyclical relationship with each other. And we have to be really clear about how these things happen. I also wanted to highlight really quickly, too, for me, at least what I'm finding in my work, particularly, again, when, when we do see that there are those people who are saying, let's talk about these fundamental causes. Let's talk about how racism is a social determinant of health. It's also a recognition of what does it mean as an ally to be a sponsor versus just a support. And so what I was hearing when I was listening to you, Trisha, is that you were identifying in those two scenarios that one person was a sponsor. They said, let me bring these people into the room and let me sit back and listen and see what it is that I can learn. I do think anyone who's in a reproductive justice space of any sort, regardless of your positionality, it requires a certain degree of humility. And that is the piece for me that I'm looking for when I go into those spaces, because I don't know what your lived experience is, just like you don't know what mine is. And although, yes, maybe these spaces are primarily Black, but not every Black person's experience is going to be the exact same, right? These other things that we have, our SES, for example, right? our sexual orientation, our gender identity, all of these things make a point and influence the ways in which we live our worlds and also how people respond to us in the worlds that we're navigating as well. And I think that's why for me, when I think about reproductive justice, I'm like, can we just, again, can we really highlight that racism is a social determinant of health? Heterosexism is a de social determinant of health, 
right? Classism is a social determinant of health. All of these systems work together to create the, the unfortunate perinatal landscape that we're looking at. And I think if we're really trying to engage in some type of change, we have to be really clear about what those systems are and pushing those people who say they want to be a sponsor to really step up and be and do that sponsorship. Absolutely, yes. And, and I think we've, we've identified quite a few of those systems in our conversation already, right? We know that a person's race is going to determine what they have access to. We know that a person's gender identity and their gender expression is going to determine what they have access to. We know that class is going to determine what someone has access to. And we know that there are lots of people that want to help. And some of them have an understanding of how to do that and some of them do not. I guess what I'm curious about from my end, and, and you all are in the trenches with this, is if there is kind of a plan, a strategy for how we move forward, we, I would love to just, you know, be able to dismantle these systems that we have in place, but they're almost embedded in who we are in our human expression in a lot of ways. And so I feel like instead of trying to necessarily tear them down from the front, we have to kind of move around them and, and under them and over them, or even, you know, just walk away from them completely. So I'm wondering, you know, what is our way forward? I love this question. Um, I am a huge advocate of community health workers. Again, Black grand midwives are some of the first ones serving the Black community in that, in that role. And so what I mean by that, for those who may not know, is that these are people who are from the community, right? These are not doctors who are living someplace else or nurses or any other type of healthcare practitioner outside. These are people who are from the community, that speak the language of the community, understand people's lived experiences, understand what those fundamental causes are. The other thing that's really beautiful about them is they function as interlocutors, right? So in essence, it's like, hey, I can be a patient advocate for you. When you have that conversation with the doctor, when you're saying to me that I have sugar and the doctor's like, I don't know what you're talking about, you can say that person can function as the person who says they're talking about diabetes is literally what they're talking about, right? Because I think having someone in, be present in those rooms and in those spaces and also in those conversations. And the reason why I'm emphasizing conversations is that we are still in a pandemic, to be very, very clear. We are very much so still in the midst of a pandemic. And thinking about the fact that many times these conversations are not happening face-to-face. -face. Instead, they're happening over a telephone, right? Or in many instances, if you have the monetary means to have the technology for a telehealth appointment in which you can actually visibly see your practitioner. So having someone like a community health worker with you is definitely one of the ways. And so again, pushing and lobbying and saying, put more money into this. The fact that most community health worker programs are still voluntary just never ceases to amaze me. But the fact that these individuals oftentimes function as a bridge into going into the healthcare professions is important. If you're saying that you're really interested in reducing like what the goal is of healthy people 2030 now is the newest version, is saying we want to eliminate health disparities. We want to increase people's quality of life and we want to increase people's life expectancy. This is how you do that. You put the money where your mouth is, right? You engage in these kinds of programs that have been proven to work. I think that's the sad thing is in our social political climate. One of the first things that people slash money from is social services. It makes no logical sense to me whatsoever. You're upset and you're mad because your constituency is upset with you, but it's like, but you made a choice and you voted to take social services away. So to me, that would be one of the first ways It's just very much so invested in community health workers. I think the other thing when people are saying that they're they're looking for help is information. 
I cannot stand the information is siloed when it relates to people getting the help that they need. It is the most frustrating thing for me because I'm like, this doesn't make sense why these organizations, these three, four organizations over here have no idea what these three, four other organizations are doing. And then they're supposedly serving the community, but then you ask them, when did you last time go into the community? And they're like, oh. So again, it's this question of like, listen, like y'all got to do that work too. And you can't put the onus on a person who's looking for help to be like, this is where I know to get the help. If you don't know, because the information is siloed. You make some great points. Uh, (laughs) Definitely. When you mentioned information being siloed, I thought about information being gatekept as well. As it relates to even us in these positions, you know, as Black people in these positions, um, we can't feel that there's, that we are crabs in the barrel. We really have to come out of that and know that our connection to these resources, each one teach one. If you found out that there was a way that you could get certain resources that your neighbor didn't know about, tell your neighbor and encourage your neighbor to tell another person by sharing resources. Essentially, you really share funding as well, because funding happens when people utilize certain resources. This is on like a public health level. And another piece of this is like, if a person has, you know, uh, connection to, or if legislators have connection to the communities that they service, really holding those legislators accountable. So too often we are, uh, I would say I, I, I'm a prism as a person. I believe in doing things outside of the government as well as within the government. And so too often we may think it just has to be one or the other and not really thinking about us as humans being able to yield our power in such a different way collectively. So collectively we can do work within our communities outside of government systems and public health and social services, but then we can also show up at the ballots and we can also advocate for uh, certain spokes, for certain legislators, for certain um attorney generals and people that can represent us and really push the policies that we would like to see. And then if they fall through, being able to come back and say, let's put a petition together to where we need to hold this politician accountable about what they said. In particular, there was a certain thing about student loans. A lot of the people who were on the student loan forgiveness who are working in public health environments were people of color because they were people who were already going into those fields and it was an incentive for them to go into those fields. And it really made an impact when the Affordable Care Act came out that there were more doctors and nurses and public health professionals who were in in training to go into these positions, but then also we're gonna get some type of incentive because it college and institutions are just way far too expensive. And that's a big piece of why we don't see ourselves in those places. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, a, a big piece, which I talked about um, before when we met Rachel, is there has to be like a cross-generation piece to it. And that ties to the gatekeeping. Um, I myself am in this field. I won't be in this position forever. I really want to see someone who can come into this position and take on this position with the type of energy, with the type of determination, with the type of lived experience necessary for creating change as opposed to seeing the same old people, same old people funneled from different positions. Uh, Mental health is a very small field. You'll see the same old people everywhere. And it's like, how come there's no new, new, new folks? Where's the new booty? You know, how do we get them in here? How do we get those lived experiences that are also very vital to be heard and to be recognized and also to see the intersections of you know, a young person to experience um, who might have been first generation compared to an elder who has been here for a long time and has been fighting systemic racism for the past 40 years. Those two people need to be in the same room creating policy together. 
I love what you just said. I'm just going to say this really fast, Ray. I think the term that just popped in my head was Ubuntu. I am because you are, right? Is really what you just said. I just wanted to highlight that really quickly because it made me so delightfully happy. <laughs> to that, so thank you. You don't have to highlight anything quickly. If you want to jump in, please do. I'm I'm waiting for you all to just have a back and forth and I'm just going to sit back here and just be like, yep, mm-hmm, that's right, yeah. Well, that's, that's definitely what I am tied to as it relates to the community worker um, experience that you mentioned. Yeah. Too often, it is a volunteer experience, a big part of what we want to do um, as it relates to volunteers that come into our fund with lived experience, especially from queer, Black, and Indigenous communities, is pay those people. Why should these people be volunteering their time instead of getting paid? And yeah. getting paid at a living wage, not getting paid at whatever stipend I could come up with that the foundation is willing to do. This also relates to like the money piece though. You know, if our allies are real allies, why do you need an itemized receipt about the money that you donated? Right. You don't. But altruism, <laughs> you have to be honest though, that in many ways, altruism is egoistic. I mean, yeah. let's be honest, right? Some people will say, I do it because it feels good. Some people will do it for that that lovely tax break, right? And that's a humility that's involved in that too, right? Of like, okay, you're right. I did do it because it does feel good. But if the other piece of it though is, but I also know that if you're okay, then we're also okay. This is why I always go back for myself when I think about that, this phrase in which someone basically says, you know, when Black people are okay, everybody will be okay. Truly, if Black people are okay, everybody will be okay. Right. And so as I was listening to you, I just could not help but just that floated back into my mind of just truly when we're OK, everybody else is OK. Yeah. And the importance that, you know, we are not one monolith. We are not yes. the same. Some yes. of us actually do have this influence of dollars or media or power um, and knowing the power that blackness has in America. I would not be so shy about yielding that power and really creating the influence that's necessary. I, I understand there's like a dollar amount that's connected to this. And that might be why people don't go as, I would say, radical. Um, but truly, there is not a need to um, just 100% rely on systems that are not working for you. If it's not connected to, you know, seeing people that look like you in the doctor's office or seeing people that sound like you when they call you for these health appointments to where you don't have to express what it means to be upset about George Floyd and why you might need a therapist after experiencing that kind of trauma on your TV screen every day. Um, I, I think it has a lot to do with, okay, well, maybe we can do this in the community. And this is something I, uh, this is a part of being, you know, very dynamic. We can do the. We can do two things at once. We can also do that for ourselves in the community too. With those people who have the dollar, maybe you're too shy to do it on a public level, on a national level, but you can donate and be able to help single mothers who do not have childcare, who cannot take off of work, who cannot um, be able to send their kids to the schools that they want to send them to because maybe financially they don't have the ability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do want to jump in here. Because I do want to play de devil's advocate here for a moment, because we're we're talking about our power as a community, and I think that's beautiful, and I think that it is incredibly powerful. But we all grew up black, and I know I grew up 
black southern and in a church and when you mm -hmm. start talking about reproduction and when you start talking about reproductive rights that fervor that we have that community love that we mm -hmm. have can start to shift and if we're really honest there are a lot of black folks that are progressively thinking and understand that reproductive health is health and there are a lot of black folks that when you start talking about reproductive health they don't want to have that conversation they don't want to hear about your rights they don't want to be spaces of empowerment and I think that's a part of our community that we have to address as well and you know I feel like I'm kind of throwing a hornet's nest into the room but I just like <laughs> I'd like to hear your thoughts about that because I mean it's real you know I appreciate you you bringing this out. And the thing that I keep thinking about and barring a little tiny, tiny bit from the Black radical tradition, right, is considering where those thoughts come from, right? And what's the, there's a, a saying that religion is the opiate of the people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was right now. I know it was, I believe it was a German philosopher. But one of the reasons I'm bringing this up though, is that we have to really fully recognize right, that many Black folks cleave to the church, like literally, like clung to it as a survivalist technique. And in essence, a survivalist technique to make themselves more palatable for white consumption. And we have to be really honest about that, right? Because knowing and recognizing that many people adhere to these kinds of beliefs, not necessarily because in the core of their very spirit that they feel them, but instead it's like, if I say something different, there may be some type of social sanction and in particular social sanction that is a punishment that I may receive for engaging in this. But this is why I always think to myself, because I also was raised a good bit of my life in the South and in those black churches. And I'm gonna tell you something, there were things that were said in the pulpit, but you go downstairs into that basement where they're cooking all that food and those ladies were having a very, very, very different conversation. Conversations about making sure somebody had contraception, right? Whether that was in the form of a prophylactic or in the form of a pill. And so I think we have to be really honest and being really clear about the fact that like there is one in sociology, we call it like front stage performance, the things you do in public, and then those conversations that are happening in private and recognizing and knowing that Black women in particular have been the ones who have literally been holding up Black churches for centuries, right? And so we take that into consideration as well. Those conversations that I'm talking about happening downstairs in the basement where everybody's cooking the food to get it ready for that meal after the Sunday services and so on, so on and so forth, right? Those conversations are just as important as well. I think the question then becomes is safety. And this is why I made a point of kind of highlighting that those conversations that are happening in the basement where there's not as many eyes and ears to hear what is being said. And yet and still the truths are being stated in those moments. I also think about the fact that we as Black people, again, largely in the South is a tradition that I'm, I'm familiar with, or a phenomenon, I should say, that I'm familiar with, in which many people would say, you know what, we know that she is pregnant, so we're going to send her over to so-and-so's house, let her have that baby, <laughs> and then bring her back, right? That, to me, I would argue, is another type of reproductive justice, because someone is saying, listen, if you decide you want to have this baby, we're going to do it in this way in which hopefully we'll remove you from certain levels of social censure because that in and of itself is also another type of stress. It causes physiological burden on the body. This, we refer to this as allostatic load, that weathering process that racism unfortunately places on BIPOC folk, right? And so one of the things that we begin to understand over and over and over again, right, is if we engage in these kinds of conversations and we do these things in support, and even if it is in secret, that's still support. Because if someone's livelihood or someone's actual life is on the line, 
those are very important considerations to have. And I think it's okay to say that the black church is contradictory. I think it's totally okay <laughs> to say that. I do. I think that it is totally okay because at the end of the day, that is talking about a real social reality. It's not just saying it's one reality. It's recognizing that there are dual realities that are happening within those spaces. Just as we do with each other as humans, right? Yes. We all have dual realities. And I would say the church has a function. And I also think a church has some pain to it. And the pain is the shame that comes with it or the guilt. And I don't think that was really wielded by Black culture. I think that we took on the master's religion and we started to do what the master does. And unfortunately, for some folks, they are awakening to that later on. But mm -hmm. I will be honest with you, if you took people in private and had a conversation, I think they'd be the same way that Dr. Bonaparte was talking about. And I do think that's different for them to feel, am I safe to say this? on the pulpit versus in this basement. Um, wow. But yeah. I, I would I would challenge that I think, I think a lot of people feel differently um, on the front end of like how they're supposed to be um, experienced in the world as opposed to really recognizing, especially if you're a person that recognizes people that suffer, unduly suffering. You as a Christian or a Catholic or of any religion, when you see a person suffering, you're not thinking, what did they do to themselves? Mm -hmm. That is not the the faith-based um, or Black faith-based thinking that comes to mind. What did they do to themselves to get themselves in this position? You're really thinking like, man, how can I bring in my brother? How can I bring in my sister and really help them and support them? And that is what Black churches tend to do, even mm -hmm. when at the pulpit on Sunday, they may be saying something contradictory. You're reminding me of a moment. I'll never forget this when I realized I did not belong in churches anymore. <laughs> I, I think I was teenage years, probably 11, maybe 12. And the minister was saying something about women falling behind a man. And I remember I raised my hand and I was like, I don't believe that. And my mom was like, sit down. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that that's how it works, you know? And one of the things I learned in my own, like just spiritual path is recognizing, right? That like, some elements of that don't jam, but those universal truths, what you were just saying, right, Tricia, of I'm here to help you be okay too, because when you're okay, then I can be okay. And I do think that that is the, as I said, those contradictions within the Black church is that really important thing. And everybody knows there's somebody in the church that's like, look, now she got a whole bunch of condoms that you can go get from her. She knows somebody who <laughs> works in the public health office who can get you some of the things you need. I'm not going to tell your mama. That's where those aunties show up. You know what I mean? And this is what I'm saying, like those contradictions. And again, who are we talking about here? We're talking about Black femmes, Black women mm -hmm. doing that work. Because we've always been our own best public health advocate. Let's be real about that part too. Yeah, and and I'm glad I threw this hornet's nest out because I agree with you, Dr. Bonaparte. You know, I I've spent a lot of time in the kitchen <laughs> with those black honeys, and you are right. And I think you know, it can feel a little bit scary to ask for help in those situations because of the front facing facing piece. And I think it's important for mm -hmm. us to remember that you know, we code switch we know how to present ourselves in a way that's going to make whiteness feel safe. But at the end of the day, we are a community. We do come together. And Trisha, you, I, I asked you all for questions. <laughs> and one of the things that you sent to me was how can community act as a kind of medicine? And I think what you're speaking on is kind of touching on that 
idea of our community being its own bomb. But but I would love for us to, you know, kind of expound upon that idea of community as medicine, because I, I do think that we offer so much love to each other, even if it is from, you know, maybe a place of, of tough love. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I definitely brought this up from an event I went to. Um, where we hosted a group of Black women talking about reproductive health, reproductive rights. And to be honest, what I've noticed is that we get into a room where we don't know anyone, yet we have very similar experiences. We all have a like, oh, you see me. Oh, you see me. That doesn't mean that you have to know your neighbor to also see them. (laughs) And I think that this is the piece of um, recognizing that the power that we have in our body language in our eyes and how you can hear a person say hey I love them red lips you know that they see you I mean I think that these are things that we don't actually take leverage of as black women in our community Um, but I make it a point for myself if I'm gonna teach it I'm gonna preach it I'm gonna walk it I definitely want to get to know everybody who's around me who is needing some support who is needing some help or who just needs some praise and I think that this is something we can do more of because a lot of the institutions that I've worked in they're utilizing free labor they're getting grants they are crowdsourcing for finances and then they're paying the people who do all the hard work pennies when essentially if we took that back into our hands we wouldn't do that we wouldn't advocate for grants and siphon the money uh, and give certain football players millions of dollars. We wouldn't, (laughs) we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't take all of this money from crowdsourcing and then be like, I'm the CEO, I'm going to make this much money and then give pennies to the people who are on the front line or hopefully get people to do this work for free. I think this is where we have to kind of take back learning from those systems, bringing them to our community And it doesn't have to be as professional as we think it is. If anything, being able to help somebody with six months of childcare or three months of groceries because they lost their partner is really valuable. And that person is probably gonna do tenfold what you did for them because that's what it means to feel a part of a system and a community that you wanna support, but that has supported you, like a family, if you will. We are a family that we just don't, as Dr. Bonaparte was saying, we've just been conditioned and trained about individualism that we forgot, you know, that we all have a very similar experience. And we would all, if if the next person got a great job, I'm sure that person wants to give back and pay it forward to the folks that helped them get into that job or the folks that helped them get through college while they were a starving student. It happens all the time. It's not an experience that I don't hear about amongst Black people. I hear it all the time. This is what they want to do. It's just about collectively saying, let's make a decision to do it, to not rely on, as I mentioned in like the last conversation we had, to not rely on FEMA when uh, Hurricane Katrina comes. Instead, let's let's take note that we got we got ourselves and we could use FEMA, but then let's look at it and say, like, is this what we really want or how do we hold them accountable and say this is what we really need, you know, as opposed to just whatever y'all give me, whatever scraps it is, I take it because I'm at your mercy as a constituent of the government. Um, This is a piece of black community that I just think we have not really leveraged in this time. Um, And we did that a lot more in the sixties and before 
Reagan and the crack era and what happened to us that really tr broke us all down. I love what you're saying, Trisha. I love it so much. Um, I had so many thoughts. And again, you were just <laughs> going, 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 going. There's there's one piece in particular I did want to extricate if I could really quickly. When you were mentioning this role, and in particular, this role of that, that affirmation aspect of community and how powerful that is, you know, seeing someone and saying, you do that thing and just how good you can see that somebody felt. Right. And they might be thinking to themselves, that wasn't even the thing, but it's something about that being seen and heard. And I want to I'm, I'm leaning a little bit into like the mindfulness practice stuff that I've been learning my, myself and also practicing. And that being is that that is our core. Those are core human desires to be seen and to be heard and to be loved. And when you activate all three of those things for people, that's when, you know, folks can just do things completely blowing up all the way out of the water. Right. And I feel like that is the beauty of Black people. I'm a proud graduate of Spelman College, and I will never forget my first homecoming. And I was like, this is live, right? Look at this. And the reason why I was so excited was not just it was this whole bunch of Black folks milling about, dancing, and there was food. You could smell it cooking in the air. It was also the fact that there were health clinics that were outside. There were voter registration booths that were outside. It was a combination of things of like, this is all in celebration of, yes, Morehouse is playing this team. They may or may not win. I think they lost the first one that I went to. But at the end of the day, right, it's this question, this under, not even question, it's this understanding of we are all gathered and there's a variety of different purposes in this gathering and allowing those spaces to happen. I go back and I think about Alondra Nelson's book uh, when she is talking about medical discrimination and how the Black Panther Party fought back against it. Could you imagine if now in these days and times that we had public health clinics that were always situated really close to Black churches? Could you imagine if we had public health clinics that would regularly have like a mobile clinic that would go to Black barbershops, the ways in which you could see this community as medicine happening? Um, I think about Wisdom Powell's work. She's an amazing psychologist. Uh, she has a, a Center for Health Equity that's out of University of Connecticut. And she does this work, right? This is how she first started doing some of her work was literally going and talking with Black men in barbershops and having those conversations and seeing these as a site and as a place of not only resistance, because as you said, we got us, but also in addition to that, to build upon what we got, right? So instead of just saying, okay, we got this plate of food and we're just going to share this plate of food. It's like the, the, the three fish in the loaves, right? For a quick second, because, you know, we got to do that for one one quick hot second, right? <laughs> but in essence, right, it's like, okay, but let's multiply this fish and multiply these loaves. So that way more people can come to the table and more people can eat too. And that for me is, as I said before, why that homecoming experience was just so beautiful to me, learning about the work of the Black Panther Party and why these public health efforts were so dangerous because they were so dangerous because they were so effective. And we have to be really clear about the fact that like when we start doing this work and folks start seeing how effective it is, it's like, wait a minute. I also wanted to highlight really quickly, you were talking about relying upon organizations like FEMA. Again, I'm a sociologist here. So I always think in this lens, it's just, it's happenstance by my career. But in essence, one of the things that I think about, right, is that bureaucratic organizations are designed to have failures. <laughs> They just are. <laughs> One of the main reasons for that is this hierarchy of authority and also this concept that we refer to as called the law of oligarchy, in which you have these people that are in these powerful these powerful positions, and they're supposed to be making decisions for the benefit of everybody in the corporation, the organization, and so forth. But we know that instead, selfishness and greed creeps up. So they make decisions for themselves, for their own personal benefit. And those decisions then further marginalize and disadvantage those people who don't have as much power, again, due to structural forces. And so in essence, 
This is why when we think about New Orleans and FEMA, it makes sense why it didn't work that well. It wasn't designed to work that way because it's a bureaucratic organization, because of law oligarchy and all the rest of these kinds of things. You've got incompetent people working within these bureaucratic organizations that don't know what it is that they're doing. I think the other thing that I find really valuable in these kinds of conversations too is noting, fully and completely noting the power of story and how lived experience can function as a tool of resistance as well. And that's what I think about also in regards to Black folks of like, think about how those stories can function as a form of inspiration. I know this person who did, we're orators. That's literally our gift. Why do you think there's a thousand and one memes more about us than anybody else in the world, right? It's because we are amazing storytellers. And that in and of itself is yet another way in which we can see real tools of, of, of resistance happening. And again, also seeing how changing those systems and breaking them down and dismantling them. So now I'm leaning into the Black feminist radical tradition here for a quick second. And that is understanding and recognizing I'm not interested in buying into these systems. What I'm interested in trying to see is what can we create outside of this system that is sustainable? And not only is it sustainable, but it's also something that is life-affirming. Because just because something is sustainable does not mean it's life-affirming. But if it's both of those things, that is where we can start to see some more progressive social change happen for us. And I'm purposeful in saying for us. <laughs> I'm going to end it on that because I feel like <laughs> you both have given me so much and whoever is listening to this, you have given them so much. I want to ask for any like closing thoughts before I do our, our closing housekeeping. But before I do that, I just want to say that I am sitting in a space of just immense gratitude for both of you, for the work that you do and for the wisdom that you so graciously share. It's to me, that is where our power lies and our ability to share information and wisdom and call people in. And that's, you know, what I hope that this does for folks is call them in, empower them to know that they have a stake and that they have a strength that they can bring to their community to help us continue to thrive. Um, and so I'm just, I'm really grateful. Just, huh, really grateful. Likewise, um, same. Thank you for offering this platform. I mean, I think that is a gift in and of itself. So thank you. Thanks. Um, but I do want to ask for closing thoughts. Um, any, any, closing ideas or or wisdom that you'd like to share with folks before we end our conversation and I'll start with you Trisha thank you well I also had a very visceral experience talking with you both this uh inspires me and engages me in my field and in the work I do so I in my life, let's be honest and <laughs> in my life experience of what I've been trying to do um the thoughts that come to mind after we've talked are really how important it is to love on yourself, forgive yourself for whatever you felt, for whatever systems made you feel the way you feel about yourself, and really honoring your love for who you are can really help you connect in seeing people for who they are, especially our Black women, our Black femmes, our Black birthing people, because my experience is so connected to yours. And honoring that I was not at fault for what I've gone through or what I've been through is a big piece to being able to see you for who you are. Sometimes we are 
jaded just by what we've experienced. And we may not have forgiven ourselves or forgiven how this happened to us, why I'm in the position I'm in today. Um, so that is one thing I want to take. And I also want to just take that if you can connect to people in spaces doing radical justice work, bring those people in your family, bring them around you, have constant conversations. Whenever you see something on the news that gets you down, that gets you distressed, it makes you feel like, oh, all hope is gone. Call up a friend. Like either you, Rachel, or you, Dr. Bonaparte, um, really being able to connect with those folks um, who are doing um, positive work and who recognize that hope is a discipline. How do you follow that, Ray? You got this. You got this. <laughs> you know, I think no matter how small of a movement or action that you think that you're taking, it's contributing to the greater of the whole. I think sometimes people think that you have to do something really big and important. There was this wonderful, um, this was pre-pandemic, of course, but there was this wonderful Facebook group that a friend of mine, she's a professor at Pomona, her name is Dr. Valerie Thomas. She does really cool work at Afrofuturism and she, she linked me in with these people. And I remember I was sitting there and there's this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful black queer person who was there. And they said, you know what? I'm not meant to march. That ain't my testimony. But what well, you know what my testimony is? I can feed you. I can bring you some milk in case they spray something in your eyes. And hearing that person say that, I thought to myself, we forget about the support people that surround people when they engage in protest. And so I think if any of your listeners, viewers, anyone who takes the time and the opportunity, which is appreciated to listen to the things we have to say, is to know that no matter how small of an act of giving that you do, please know that it does contribute to the greater of the whole. I think the other thing, to the point that you were saying before, Tricia, and that is that radical self compassion. Can you imagine what our world would look like if people were more compassionate towards themselves and what that would be as a model for our children? And when we really get into thinking about what reproductive justice is truly about, that's autonomous choice, these decisions are being supported and honored. If you see someone honoring themselves, that helps you to figure out how to honor yourself too. And these are the ways in which for me that I see how the movement is just so supportive, so collaborative, and also so life-changing as well. So those would be the things that I would say. Oh, thank you both so much. Hope is a discipline. Even a small act is enough. I'm going to carry those things. I'm going to carry it all with me. <laughs> but <laughs> me me <I> think too. <laughs> those are amazing notes to end on. And thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. <sighs> that conversation left me so full and so hopeful. Um, I hope that you were able to find some really helpful nuggets in there. Um, I hope that it uplifted you and maybe even motivated you to go out into your community and do that small thing, um, as Dr. Bonaparte said. Um, and, you know, hope is a discipline. We can all hold hope as a discipline um but i'm not gonna get back into the weeds i will leave links in the show notes for dr bonaparte and trisha's past episodes they are definitely worth a listen you will also find ways to connect with black women wellness in the show notes always love to hear from you and if you are a black woman working in wellness and you'd like to be featured on the podcast please do reach out um and with that good people be safe and be well